1: Radio Westeros, episode 70, A Right to Vengeance. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere and with me, as always, is Yolk Boy.
2: Yeah, hi there everyone and thanks so much for being here. Today we're going to give you an in-depth look at the epilogue that blew so many of us away – It's Merit Frey and Lady Stoneheart, everyone.
1: Yeah, this is the final part of our occasional series on the prologues and epilogues of A Song of Ice and Fire, and we're sure you'll agree this Merit chapter is a classic. So, to begin, we'll discuss our unlikely point of view as we consider who is Merit Frey.
2: Next, we'll take a deep dive into the chapter itself in a walkthrough style, leaving no stone unturned. How does George build tension before the jaw-dropping Stoneheart reveal? Perhaps the biggest twist in the series to date. Stay tuned to find out.
1: From there, we'll discuss the meta-purpose of the epilogue, as well as highlighting all of those instances of foreshadowing throughout the first three novels that prefigured Catelyn's resurrection, where we'll see hints stretching as far back as the early pages of A Game of Thrones. And to
2: wrap things up, we'll take a look at the significance of Old Stones as our setting for the epilogue and discuss the theme of vengeance in The Song of Ice and Fire and where Lady Stoneheart's campaign could lead. It's a packed episode today and we have much and more to tell you about Merit Frey, the BWB and, of course, Lady Stoneheart.
1: And Radio Westeros is supported by patrons and so before we begin... Let's take a moment to shout out our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Daniel, Crispy, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, Scotty, and John Wergarian, as well as B Word and Mr. J, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto We forge the chains we wear in life. Thanks so much to all of you, and if you want to be a patron of the show, earn shout-outs and access to our patron-exclusive content, find us on patreon.com slash So
2: now, let's get started with the final chapter of A Storm of Swords, the Merit Frey Epilogue.
1: He would be 40 in less than three years, too old to take up the life of a hedge knight. Even if he had been a knight, which, as it happened, he wasn't. He had no land, no wealth of his own. He owned the clothes on his back, but not much else. Not even the horse he was riding. He wasn't clever enough to be a maester, pious enough to be a septon, or savage enough to be a sellsword. The gods gave me no gift but birth, and they stinted me there. What good was it to be the son of a rich and powerful house if you were the ninth son? When you took grandsons and great-grandsons into account... Merritt stood a better chance of being chosen high Septon than he did of inheriting the twins.
2: Merritt Frey was born the ninth son of Lord Walder Frey, his fourth son by his third wife, Lady Amore Crakehall, in 262 A.C., He's mentioned just once in the narrative prior to the Red Wedding when Big Walder and Merritt's son Little Walder explain their positions within House Frey to Bran at Winterfell in A Clash of Kings. But in his own chapter, we will learn a fair amount about his youth and character and his standing within House Frey. As he worries about his future prospects, it says... He wasn't clever enough to be a maester, pious enough to be a septon or savage enough to be a sellsword. The gods gave me no gift but birth and they stinted me there. What good was it to be the son of a rich and powerful house if you were the ninth son? When you took grandsons and great grandsons into account, Merit stood a better chance of being chosen high septon than he did of inheriting the twins.'
1: Merrick goes on to recall his past. In his youth, he was said to be nearly as strong as his elder brother, Hostine, noted to be the strongest, if perhaps one of the densest, of Lord Walder's sons. And so, with some promise of being a warrior, he was sent to serve as page and then squire with his mother's family at Craycall. From his own thoughts, we learn what happened there after he was made a squire by Lord Sumner Craycall. Joining in the fight against the Kingswood Brotherhood, Merrick caught a pox from a camp follower and then was captured by the female member of the Brotherhood, Wenda the White Fawn. Wenda proceeded to leave her literal mark upon the youth, branding his buttocks with her symbol of a fawn, a detail which is elaborated on by Jamie Lannister in A Feast for Crows. The outlaw queen burned her sigil into his arse before ransoming him back to Sumner Craycall. Merritt had not been able to sit down for a fortnight, though Jamie doubted that the red-hot iron was half so nasty as the kettles of shit his fellow squires made him eat once he returned.
2: Merritt recalls that Jamie was a fellow squire in those days, quote, covering himself in glory, and it turns out that having a history with a main POV character will later allow us to gain a greater insight into his story. Merritt also recalls that after being ransomed from the outlaws, he took a blow to the head from a mace in their very next fight that left him, quote, "...insensible for a fortnight," and eventually resulted in him being sent back to the twins as he could no longer suffer even the slightest blow to his head without experiencing pain that reduced him to tears. Not only were his dreams of knighthood over, but he would have to endure a lifetime of his father's mockery, coupled with blinding headaches that drove him to drink to excess.
1: In A Feast for Crows, when Merritt's wife, Lady Maria Dari, informs Jamie of her husband's death at the hands of outlaws at Oldstones, she reminds him that they were acquainted in their youth. Jamie acknowledges that they were at Craycall Hall together, but thinks... He would not go so far as to claim they had been friends. When Jamie had arrived, Merritt Frey had been the castle bully, lording it over all the younger boys. Then he tried to bully me.
2: And so it's implied that Jamie put Merritt in his place even before the Kingswood Brotherhood incident. In the end, Jamie can think of nothing better to say than that Merritt had been very strong before offering a perfunctory toast to his memory. When Merritt's daughter, Amore, suggests that her father used to tell her stories about their exploits against the outlaws, Jamie thinks what she really means is that her father used to boast and lie.
1: Jamie clearly has few, if any, positive memories of the boy from his past, and in addition to supplying further details about the hostage incident, the branding, and the torment Merritt endured from his fellow squires afterward, Jamie thinks boys are the cruelest creatures on earth. Paired with his thoughts about Merritt's own youthful character as a pretentious bully, quote, slow and clumsy and stupid, who was put in his place by a newcomer four years his junior, we can assume that those times were far from pleasant for Merritt. But the fact that Merritt continues to speak of them and look back upon them as his glory days, well into middle age, speaks volumes about the life he led as an adult.
2: After his return to the twins, Merritt wed Maria Dari in 282 as the kingdom teetered on the edge of civil war. It was initially considered to be a very good match as House Darry was quite powerful in the Riverlands at that time and were amongst the primary supporters of House Targaryen in the lead-up to Robert's Rebellion. In the aftermath of the war, though, with three of Maria's brothers dead at the Trident, fighting with the royal army, and the house, according to merit, losing half their lands, most of their wealth, and almost all of their power, it's unclear that there was any prestige to be had from the
1: match. It is clear, though. That Maria Dari found her husband unsatisfactory, and it would appear the feeling was mutual. Merritt thinks of his wife as a shrew and laments that she's given him only one son, and that, of their surviving daughters, two of them are an embarrassment the promiscuous Gatehouse Ammy, named for his mother, Amore Cracol, and the mockingly named Fat Walda. And so, with little to recommend him to his father, his family, or the world, and plagued by headaches as a result of the head injury he suffered in his youth, Merrick gained a reputation as a sot. By the time of the Red Wedding, his large frame and strength, typical of the Craycall family that he had inherited from his mother, has gone to fat, and his heavy drinking, a self-medicating response to the severe headaches he suffered, seems like it might be his sole talent.
2: In fact, he's noted by Catelyn Stark to be matching the Great John one for one at the Red Wedding. As the wedding feast gets underway at the Twins, Cat observes, The late Lord Frey might be niggardly when it came to feeding his guests, but he did not stint on the drink. The ale, wine and mead were flowing as fast as the river outside. The Great John was already roaring drunk. Lord Walder's son Merit was matching him cup for cup, but Sir Wayland Frey had passed out trying to keep up with the two of them. Catelyn would sooner Lord Umber had seen fit to stay sober, but telling the Great John not to drink was like telling him not to breathe for a few hours.
1: And indeed, Merit drinking with Great John Umber turns out to have been by design, as without any other recognisable talents... His brothers had assigned him the task of getting the giant Northman so drunk he wouldn't be able to fight. But it seems he failed even at that task, as it says, he'd cozened the huge Northman into drinking enough wine to kill any three normal men, yet after Roslyn had been bedded, the great John still managed to snatch the sword of the first man to accost him and break his arm in the snatching. It had taken eight of them to get him into chains, and the effort had left two men wounded, one dead... And poor old Sir Leslin Hay, short half an ear. When he couldn't fight with his hands any longer, Umber had fought with his teeth.
2: And so his own POV chapter finds him tasked with a mission that Merritt hoped would be redemptive, responding to a ransom demand for his great-nephew, Peter Pimple, who had disappeared, quote, "'wandering off with some bloody camp follower like a stag in rut.'" By volunteering to deliver a hundred gold dragons at the appointed time and place, Merritt hoped to gain favour with Peter's father, Ryman, now heir to the crossing. Sadly, it was not to be. Merritt would once again fall afoul of outlaws, and this time he would endure more than a humiliating brand or a blow to the head.
1: Unbeknownst to Merritt, Peter was dead. Keeping company with camp followers seems even more unhealthy than usual for Freys in the aftermath of the Red Wedding, as will soon become evident when Peter's father, Ryman, also dies at the hands of outlaws while in the company of a woman calling herself Queen of the Whores. And so Merritt's mission was a trap, and he died as he had lived, a hapless failure mocked by outlaws and family alike.
2: His legacy may also be one of failure. In A Dance with Dragons, his only son, little Walder, will turn up dead at Winterfell where Merritt's daughter Walder is also in residence as Roose Bolton's second wife. But how safe can Walder herself be, carrying a new heir to House Bolton while her husband's legitimised bastard rages across the story? Ramsay's loss of his own wife, the so-called Arya Stark, may leave his position more precarious than Roose had hoped, which in turn may leave Walder and the child she carries vulnerable.
1: His daughter Amoray had been raised to be Lady of Darry due to her mother being a Darry by birth and her own marriage to Lancel Lannister, whose extended family was calling the shots in the aftermath of the War of the Five Kings. But with Lancel abandoning Derry and returning to King's Landing to take vows as a member of the reborn Faith Militant, Amore Frey's position at Derry may also be precarious, leaving Merritt not even the posthumous consolation of his children succeeding at life.
2: House Frey is without a doubt the most complicated house in Westeros. With Walder Frey having 21 trueborn sons, 21 grandsons, and at least five acknowledged bastard sons, not to mention great-grandsons and countless daughters and their offspring, the succession is not only complex, but ever-shifting and potentially in dispute. We see at least a dozen deaths in A Song of Ice and Fire that directly affect or change the succession, and merit himself rose swiftly in a very long list of potential successors due to several of them.
1: When the 92-year-old patriarch finally passes away, whether by natural causes or otherwise, and with the succession now set to devolve upon his great-grandson Edwin in spite of having numerous sons still living, we can expect things in House Frey to soon become even more shambolic than they have been thus far – And so, with all of this in mind, let's dive into a complete overview of the Astormisorts prologue, where we'll encounter much more than a single disappointing member of House Frey. The road up to Old Stones went twice round the hill before reaching the summit. Overgrown and stony, it would have been slow going even in the best of times, and last night's snow had left it muddy as well. "'Snow in autumn in the riverlands. "'It's unnatural,' Merritt thought gloomily. "'It had not been much of a snow, true, "'just enough to blanket the ground for a night. "'Most of it had started melting away as soon as the sun came up. "'Still, Merritt took it for a bad omen. "'Between rains, floods, fire, and war, "'they had lost two harvests and a good part of a third. "'An early winter would mean famine all across the riverlands. "'A great many people would go hungry.' and some of them would starve. Merritt only hoped he wouldn't be one of them. I may, though. With my luck, I just may. I never did have any luck. Merritt
2: Frey's chapter begins with a description of the difficult journey across the Riverlands to the ruins of Oldstones. The old castle lies directly south of Merritt's home at the Twins, and the weather has made the final ascent up the hill on horseback gruelling and slow going. With snow falling unexpectedly the previous night, the overgrown and stony pathway has now become muddy enough to cause Merritt concern. Snow in autumn in the Riverlands, it's unnatural. Merritt thinks gloomily, as he contemplates the fact that an early winter could lead to food shortages and perhaps widespread famine in the Riverlands. This opening paragraph helps to set up future volumes where the turn in weather, coupled with the reemergence of the cold-related others, looks set to become a central feature of the story in Westeros, an aspect to the world-building prefigured as far back as Bran's opening chapter in the first novel, where summer snows were remarked upon to signify the end of summer.
1: Merritt's fear that, due to his ill luck, he could be one of the ones to starve this winter not only conveys his sense of powerlessness and vulnerability, but lets us know that he's a character who has suffered greatly and feels a high degree of self-pity. George doesn't hesitate in explaining where Merritt's apparent misfortune originated as the character surveys the wooded landscape around the lower slopes of the hill, keeping his eyes peeled for outlaws hiding in the dense thicket. It says... Merritt hated the woods, if truth be told, and he hated outlaws even more. Outlaws stole my life, he had been known to complain when in his cups.
2: George draws a direct and succinct line from Merritt's nemesis, thus far referred to simply as outlaws, to the coping strategy for his pain, as we learn that he was too often in his cups and such is his dependence on alcohol that it seems to have become a significant part of his identity he thinks you needed some sort of distinction in the twins else they were liable to forget you were alive but a reputation as the biggest drinker in the castle had done little to enhance his prospects
1: living in such a large family as the frays who for the most part all live under one roof must be highly competitive, an environment where power is recognized, strength is rewarded, and every individual must struggle to find their niche and purpose. As such, while Merritt's sad reputation as the biggest drinker at the Twins is hardly one to boast about, we learn that there was a time when he aspired to far loftier ambitions. It says, I once hoped to be the greatest knight who ever couched a lance. The gods took that away from me.
2: Somehow Merritt's early dreams were shattered by outlaws and we sense that George will continue to weave this backstory in around the narrative of the chapter. We know Merritt's heavy drinking is inextricably linked to his past and that drunkenness not only alleviates the migraines he suffered but helps him forget the plight of his current situation as he sees it. Why shouldn't I have a cup of wine from time to time? It helps my headaches. Besides, my wife is a shrew, my father despises me, my children are worthless. What do I have to stay sober for?
1: Although there is pathos to be found in the fact that Merritt struggles to function on a basic level due to his headaches, there is an undeniable woe-is-me tone to his internal monologue and a tendency to blame everyone and everything for his shortcomings. Describing his children as worthless highlights that in the cutthroat world of fray intra-house politics, Merritt perceives his offspring as commodities rather than loving them with warmth in his heart. It seems he is trapped in a vicious cycle. He drinks to numb his headaches, which makes his family life more challenging, causing him to drink more. And by wallowing in self-pity, he's not making life any easier for himself.
2: Yeah, his headaches are described in detail, and to be fair to him, they sound extremely painful. Merritt could feel the headache building behind his eyes and he knew that if he gave it half a chance he would soon feel as if he had a thunderstorm raging between his ears. Sometimes his headaches got so bad that it even hurt too much to weep. Then all he could do was rest on his bed in a dark room with a damp cloth over his eyes and curse his luck and the nameless outlaw who had done this to him. Notice once more that he blames luck for his situation, but this time alludes to the single outlaw who caused his life of pain. The medieval world was brutal, and this fantasy setting is no different. In spite of the tradition of maesters, there are no hospitals or true medical specialists in Westeros, and so many injuries are simply untreatable. This leaves, for example, Gregor Clegane to quaff milk of the poppy for his headaches, and Merritt self-medicating is comparable.
1: George uses the headaches to inject tension into the chapter, as Merritt firmly believes all his luck will change if he can just complete his mission without getting a migraine. It says… Just thinking about it made him anxious. He could no wise afford a headache now. If I bring Peter back home safely, all my luck will change. He had the gold. All he needed to do was climb to the top of Old Stones, meet the bloody outlaws in the ruined castle, and make the exchange. A simple ransom. Even he could not muck it up, unless he got a headache, one so bad that it left him unable to ride. He was supposed to be at the ruins by sunset, not weeping in a huddle at the side of the road.
2: We learn that Merritt was mocked by his father, Lord Walder Frey, when he asked to be sent on the exchange mission, and that this is the one chance he has to try and distinguish himself for something other than drinking. If he manages to rescue Peter Pimple unharmed, his fortunes could change and he'd stand a better chance of surviving the winter behind the walls of the twins. Even so, the temptation to ride off into the sunset to the nearest alehouse with the ransom gold is high. The thought of facing the outlaws is reminding him of his time fighting against the Kingswood Brotherhood, and it's such a painful memory for him that he considers letting Peter hang.
1: As it happens, Peter, third son of Raymond and grandson to the late Stevron, was captured by the Outlaws after, quote, wandering off with some bloody camp follower like a stag in Rut. This reminds Merritt of the time he caught a pox from a sex worker in his youth, and so he resolves to be more understanding and sympathetic to his relative. Peter's wife has been cheating on him with his own older full brother, Walder, amidst rumors that Blackwalder, as he was known, had also bedded their brother Edwin's wife, Janice Hunter, his niece, Fairwalda, and even the seventh Lady Frey, Lady Anara Faring. This is one of several indications that all is not well and good within the Frey camp and that there could be internal conflict in the not-so-distant future.
2: And knowing he would not be welcomed back into the Twins should he fail his mission sets Merritt's personal stakes in the hostage exchange sky-high, and so he rides on. He reflects that Lord Walder, at 92 years of age, quote, could not possibly last much longer – all his sons agreed. However, despite Lord Walder's nasty streak, he does at least take care of his family. But if Walder dies, Merit fears the power shift within the twins will work firmly against him. With Walder's first heir, Stevron dying while campaigning with the young wolf, it says, Stevron's son, Sir Ryman, stood to inherit now a thick-witted, stubborn, greedy man and after Ryman came his own sons, Edwin and Blackwalder, who were even worse.
1: And with the dangerous lame Lothar, Lord Walder's steward, who had helped plan some of the more brutal aspects of the Red Wedding, waiting in the wings as well, Merritt anticipates some sort of succession struggle to break out when Walder eventually passes. This prospect worries Merritt, who expects that the new lord will turf out anyone they find to be of little use. At 37 years of age, and with his physical problems, he counts himself too old to become a hedge knight. And so we understand his deep insecurities that have driven him to volunteer to be the third party in this dangerous hostage ransom.
2: But if Merritt could just complete his mission and ride back to the twins with Peter, he would have proved himself and scored significant points that could help him find a place within any newly emerging Frey hierarchy. Still, that's easier said than done, and he continues to blame his misfortunes on bad luck. He recalls the time he caught a pox, then was captured by Wender, the white fawn of the Kingswood Brotherhood, and following his subsequent release, was smashed in the head with a mace by another outlaw. If truth be told, none of these things sound like bad luck exactly, but he refuses to question his own part in these events.
1: So the mace attack is revealed to be the cause of his headaches, a blow so hard that it left him insensible for a fortnight, and almost dead. When he regained his senses, Lord Sumner Craycall, who had taken Meriton as a page and then squire, informed him that he'd never make a knight and that his fighting days were done. For a man whose primary attribute was brute strength, this news must have been as excruciating as his headaches, exacerbated by the fact that his fellow squire at Craigcall, Jamie Lannister, was, quote, covering himself in glory during those same skirmishes. Jamie, at the ripe age of 15, saved Sumner Craigcall from Big Belly Ben in the fight against the Kingswood Brotherhood. After crossing swords with notorious villain, the Smiling Knight, he was raised to knighthood by his personal hero, Sir Arthur Dane, for valor on the battlefield. We can only imagine how Merritt Frey felt about falling so low when, in contrast, his fellow, four years his junior, was soaring so high.
2: And from a low ebb, Merritt believes his luck only got worse from that point on. In spite of facing Lord Walder's poisonous disdain for the crime of suffering a debilitating injury, his father was able to provide him with an excellent marriage to the apparently attractive Maria Darry back when House Darry stood high in King Aries's favour. However, as we noted earlier, soon after their marriage, House Darry was disempowered by the new king due to the unwavering loyalty they had shown House Targaryen during Robert's Rebellion and lost much of their lands and riches.
1: And to add insult to injury, Merritt's wife is said to have found him a great disappointment from the first – their marriage resulted in five daughters, including a stillbirth and one that died in infancy before their son, little Walder, was born. As with all of his bad luck, Merritt blames someone else, in this case, Maria, for their lack of sons and the deaths, as if she had done it on purpose to spite him. Again, there's no sign of warmth from Merritt, who describes his eldest daughter, Amy as a slut and her sister, Walda, a glutton. Given his disdain and his tendency to view his children as nothing more than political pawns, with or without his migraines, we find it unlikely that Merritt was anything close to resembling a good father.
2: As a precursor to the Red Wedding, when Roose Bolton and Lord Walder had perhaps been in the early stages of scheming together to form some sort of secret alliance, Roose was offered his pick of fray women as wife, much as Robb Stark was. To Merritt's surprise, Roos chose his second daughter Walda, which Merritt thought was a change in his fortunes that could elevate him within his house. However, given Roos Bolton's admission to Jamie Lannister that, quote, My Lord of Frey offered me my bride's weight in silver for a dowry, so I chose accordingly. Lord Walder did not see the marriage in those terms, and instead of praising Merritt's role in securing an important alliance via his daughter, he mocked him. "'He picked her because she's fat,' Lord Walder said. "'You think Bolton gave a mumma's fart that she was your whelp?' "'Think he sat about thinking, "'Heh, Merit muttonhead, that's the very man I need for a good father.' Your Walder's a sow in silk, that's why he picked her, and I'm not like to thank you for it. We'd have had the same alliance at half the price if your little porkling put down her spoon from time to time.
1: The final humiliation for Merritt, it says, is when lame Lothar shared the plans for the Red Wedding with him. As we've said, Merritt's role was a simple one. He was instructed to use his well-known talent as a heavy drinker to lure the ferocious Great John Umber into some sort of drinking contest to ensure the big man was too inebriated to defend his king. Although it was a simple task, and one for which lame Lothar thought he was uniquely well-suited, merit reflects upon the fact that he even failed at that. In the last section, we mentioned that he managed to get the Great John to drink enough wine to, quote, kill any three normal men— Yet when the knives came out and the slaughter began, the big man still managed to kill and injure numerous Freys. Merritt blames himself for this carnage, and we'd say it's a fair bet that Lord Walder does too. All of which leads into Merritt's fateful decision to try and distinguish himself with some sort of desperate glory by heroically meeting the outlaws alone and exchanging the bag of gold for the hostage.
2: Yeah, Merritt believes if he could bring back Peter unharmed, Peter's father Ryman, now the number one heir following the death of his father Stevron, would look favourably upon him. It says, If he could bring back Peter Pimple, the boy would be grateful for my part, and his father will see that I am loyal, a man worth having about. So, Merritt seeks to make himself useful in anticipation of the death of his father and perhaps sees this as a life-or-death situation. If Raymond takes the reins at the twins and deems Merritt one amidst a sea of half-siblings to be of little use, Merritt could find himself homeless and penniless as a brutal winter closes in, too old to fend for himself as a hedge knight, and in all reality living with a debilitating disability. The thought of being turfed out of the twins is a bleak one, bleak enough to drive Merritt into action during this epilogue.
1: With the stakes being so high, we can understand Merritt's anxiety at delivering Peter unharmed. The tension is ratcheted up by the current situation reminding Merritt of his painful backstory. He himself was captured and ransomed, and so meeting with the outlaws must feel like history repeating itself. To his credit, in spite of his anxiety and his headaches, Merritt arrives at the exchange point on time and swigs some wine to steady his nerves.
2: Merritt follows the curtain wall on top of the hill at Oldstones, around to where the gatehouse would have stood. The undergrowth has grown so thick and wild he has to dismount his palfrey, leaving him vulnerable to whoever is hiding in the thickets. That's when he hears faint music drifting through the trees which unnerves him enough to continue his fantasy of riding off to Old Town and drinking the ransom money away. His mind once again reflects on his capture by the Kingswood Brotherhood and this is where we learn that the outlaw named Wender the White Fawn had burned a fawn into the cheek of his ass while she had him captive.
1: While the thought of Merritt being branded on the butt might be amusing for readers, for him it's just another item on his laundry list of terrible luck. The fact that Merritt, who was proud of his martial prowess in those days, was punished in this way by a woman no doubt offended his masculinity and added to his complete humiliation. No wonder his wife despised him, it says, as we contemplate the fact that the damage the Brotherhood did was not only to his head and his arse, but to his reputation and his self-esteem. Like his migraines, the branding is a permanent reminder of his ill luck or shortcomings in battle, depending on which way you see it. Either way, years after the fact, Merritt still has to contend with constant reminders of the damage to both his body and his pride inflicted by outlaws. But as he listens to the music of another set of outlaws, he reminds himself that Peter Pimple might one day be Lord of the Crossing, and with another swig of wine, readies himself to face his fears. Fallen leaves lay thick upon the ground like soldiers after some great slaughter. A man in patched faded greens was sitting cross-legged atop a weathered stone sepulcher, fingering the strings of a wood harp. The music was soft and sad. Merritt knew the song. High in the halls of the kings who are gone, Jenny would dance with her ghosts.
2: Merritt's first reaction is to tell the singer to move from the sepulchre that he's sitting on a king. Given that the ring wall at Oldstones resembles a crown, and that King Christopher was known as the Hammer of Justice, there's a fair amount of overt justice-related themes and imagery in the scene, which we'll cover in detail in a later segment. The singer is described as foxy-faced with a wide smile, and when he asks Merit, Do you remember me, my lord? The reader can already guess that this is Tom O'Sevens of the Brotherhood Without Banners, the outlaw group whose original quest to bring justice to Gregor Clegane has become increasingly corrupted over the course of the War of the Five Kings.
1: In the here and now, Thomas Evans reminds Merritt that he had played at his daughter Amore's wedding to Pate of the Blue Fork and claims Pate is a cousin of his. He also mentions that Lord Walder never had him play at the Twins, which could be part of a setup for Tom one day coming into close proximity with Lord Walder without being recognized. When a harsh voice behind Tom cuts through the small talk demanding to know if he has the gold— Merritt's PTSD takes him back to the Kingswood Brotherhood. Bloody outlaws, always hiding in the bushes. It had been the same in the Kingswood. You'd think you'd caught five of them and ten more would spring from nowhere. All of a sudden, Merritt
2: finds himself surrounded by the outlaws, and we appreciate that alone in the undergrowth, he's now so vulnerable that his life is in their hands. He observes around a dozen of them clad in rough-spun rags, boiled leather, and bits of dead men's armour, and although the reader initially can't tell just who is who, there's a curious description of a woman among them, quote, "...bundled up in a hooded cloak three times too big for her."
1: The identity of this cloaked woman is a mystery, and the reader is certain that this woman has never been described as part of the BWB before – Who is she? What does she want? And why is she wearing an oversized cloak? Before these questions can be answered, the man with the harsh voice reiterates his question. Where's our gold? He's described as a large man with a broken nose and a distinctive yellow cloak. This, of course, is none other than Lem Lemon Cloak, who had his nose broken by Arya Stark earlier in a Storm of Swords.
2: Merritt demands to see Peter before handing over the gold, but a one-eyed outlaw steps forth and boldly swipes the gold before he can even protest. This exchange, if there is to be one, will be done on the outlaw's terms and there's nothing Merritt can do about it. Like his time as a captive in the Kingswood, he finds himself completely disempowered and so his nightmare begins again. He asks which one of the men is BWB leader Beric Dondarrion, but can't even get a straight answer there. The one-eyed man claims he's Beric before Lem calls him Jack, and so the reader knows that this is Jack B. Lucky and not Dondarrion.
1: The whereabouts of Dondarrion, alongside the identity of the cloaked woman, is another mystery, and the Brotherhood makes some fun of it by misidentifying each other to further confuse Merrick. He is being toyed with, for the outlaws this is a game, one which is excruciating for our point of view. It says, Merritt had plenty of fear, his head was pounding too, much more of this, and he'd be sobbing. Now that they have the gold, he pleads with the Brotherhood to release his nephew Peter, really a sort of great half-nephew, and he's told that Peter will be found in Oldstone's Godswood. <laughs> Leaves crunched beneath their heels, and every step sent a spike of pain through Merritt's temple. They walked in silence, the wind gusting around them. The last light of the setting sun was in his eyes as he clambered over the mossy hummocks that were all that remained of the keep. Behind was the godswood.
2: To his shock, Merritt looks up to see Peter Pimple hanging from a tree. His eyes bulged from a black face, staring down at Merritt accusingly. You came too late, they seemed to say. But he hadn't, he hadn't. He had come when they told him. Despite the tree being an oak and not a weirwood, it should be noted that the fact that the brotherhood hanged Peter in a godswood ties the execution to the old gods, bearing in mind that the phrase had desecrated the tradition of guest rite, highly honoured by those who adhere to the old religion at the Red Wedding. It seems there is some thought and symbolism behind the killing.
1: But guest rite was more than a tradition – Guaranteeing rival houses' safety under one's roof allowed for vital channels of diplomacy, encouraging communication between powerful families, and providing a safe harbor where politics could be ironed out and peace maintained. When the phrase killed Rob Stark, Catelyn, and the Stark soldiers without mercy, they jeopardized an age-old pact and destroyed any notion of trust within the macro-political arena of Westeros, and we'll discuss this more shortly.
2: But here we see the immediate effect of that breach. A hostage exchange is usually a matter of trust, but with basic customs and standards now in the muck, the Brotherhood feel entitled to betray the phrase in return and murder their captive. With the hostage dead and with the bag of gold already taken, Merritt now finds himself in grave danger. I brought the gold. That was good of you, said the singer amiably. "'We'll see that it's put to good use.' Merritt turned away from Peter. He could taste the bile in the back of his throat. "'You? You had no right.' "'We had a rope,' said Yellow Cloak. "'That's right enough.'
1: When two outlaws seize Merritt's arms and bind them behind his back, he pleads with the Brotherhood that he was true to his word and that they should be too. They had, after all, promised to release Peter if Merritt met the conditions— and in spite of all his difficulties, he had succeeded. The singer tells him, Well, you've got us there, my lord. That was a lie of sorts, as it happens.
2: The fact that the Brotherhood are now revelling in their own dishonesty speaks not only to the broken trust set to poison Westerosi politics, but to the declining morals of the outlaw group. Where once they saw themselves as an upstanding group of justice-seekers, now they find themselves backsliding towards being an organisation set on revenge. Given they will shortly reveal that they're looking for Arya Stark, they evidently still have other objectives beyond vengeance at this stage, but this chapter is proof enough that moral decay has well and truly set in, and that they will respond to the phrase dastardly tactics with base subterfuge of their own. As such, the BWB are ceding any notion of maintaining a higher moral ground than their opponents and instead have been drawn into the muck. The big question for readers is, how far down the dishonourable rabbit hole will this group go in order to achieve their goals?
1: And in the here and now of the chapter, we get a short answer to that question, as Jack Belucky coils a hempen rope around Merritt's neck, and Lemoncloak prepares to hang the man in the same fashion as Peter Pimple. Merritt is dumbfounded, and being from a large and relevant house, perhaps sees himself as immune to such treatment. You'd never dare hang a fray, he pleads in a fit of denial, ignoring the evidence of his eyes as Peter's body sways from a branch behind him.
2: Merritt desperately suggests that the group could keep him alive and demand a ransom, but the outlaws are not foolish enough to try the same trick twice. They know the Freys will be sending soldiers to hunt them, but they have supreme confidence in their guerrilla warfare and using the surroundings as their camouflage. Drawing bands of armed Freys out of the Twins would be one way to grind them down and defeat them, though perhaps not the only way.
1: As Barrett prepares to meet his doom, Thomas Evans offers a sliver of hope when he requests some information, although given that he'd admitted to being wholly dishonest only a few moments prior, the singer's perhaps being a bit disingenuous when he offers to tell them to let you go if Barrett answers their questions. Still, this is Barrett's only chance at survival, and he's prepared to, quote, tell them anything if it meant his life. Tom's questions concern the whereabouts of Sander Clegane, who had previously stolen Arya Stark from the group following his nerve-wracking trial-by-combat against Lord Berwick. Sander had thought to ransom Arya back to her family to compensate for the gold the Brotherhood had relieved him of, and at this stage, the reader is unaware of the full significance of the group searching for the missing Stark girl.
2: Whether it be from close tracking or supernatural means, the Brotherhood are aware of the path Sandor and Arya took to the twins, where they had hoped to intersect with Arya's mother, Catelyn Stark. They know about Sandor crossing the Trident via the ferry, and that the pair might have arrived at the Frey stronghold on the fateful night of Edmure's wedding. In the heat of the moment, Merritt can't help but be honest and confess that he has no pertinent knowledge. He did his best to recall. There had been so much confusion, but surely someone would have mentioned Joffrey's dog sniffing round the twins. He wasn't in the castle, not at the main feast. He might have been at the bastard feast or in the camps. But, no,
1: someone would have said. Inexplicably to Merritt. Tom continues, asking about a girl or a boy of about 10 years old who might have been seen with Clegane. Bemused, Merritt again denies any knowledge, and so, having answered the question truthfully, he feels entitled to be untied and released based on Tom's statement to him. Yet, unsurprisingly, the Brotherhood have other ideas, and Tom finds a loophole in his prior promise. Here's the passage Ah, that's a pity. Well, up you go. No, Merritt squealed loudly. No, don't. I gave you your answer. You said you'd let me go. Seems to me that what I said was I'd tell them to let you go. The singer looked at Yellow Cloak. Lem, let him go. Go bugger yourself, the big outlaw replied brusquely. The singer gave Merritt a helpless shrug and began to play The Day They Hanged Black Robin. But Merritt is not
2: quite ready to give up just yet and begins to verbally spar with Lem and Jack. As, quote, the last of his courage ran down his leg, Merritt tries to appeal to their humanity by pointing out that he has children. That young wolf never will, replies Jack, before Merritt attempts to justify the cold-blooded murder of the king in the north. He shamed us. The whole realm was laughing. We had to cleanse the stain on our honour. It was vengeance. We had a right to our vengeance. It was war. Aegon, we called him Jingle Bell, a poor lackwit, Never hurt anyone. Lady Stark cut his throat. We lost half a hundred men in the camps. Sir Gars Goodbrook, Kyra's husband, Sir Titus, Jared's son. Someone smashed his head in with an axe. Stark's direwolf killed four of our wolfhounds and tore the kennelmaster's arm off his shoulder, even after we'd filled him full of quarrels.
1: Here George underscores the burgeoning theme of vengeance – The Freys were apparently seeking vengeance for broken oaths, and now they want vengeance for those who suffered during the claiming of that vengeance, while the Brotherhood are bent on vengeance as well, all of which brings to mind the words of Ilaria Sand from A Dance with Dragons in the wake of her husband's death. Oberyn wanted vengeance for Ilya, now the three of you want vengeance for him. Is that how it goes, round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end?
2: Merritt's attempts to justify the Red Wedding fall flat for both the reader and the BWB alike, with Lem highlighting the brutal nature of the atrocity by recalling the gruesome detail that Robb Stark had his direwolf's head sewn onto his body. Merritt pleads that the beheading was all his father's idea and that his own role on that evening was merely to drink heavily, conveniently skipping over the fact that he was drinking in order to facilitate more murder. Sensing that his arguments are falling on deaf ears, he rolls the dice one last time. They say Lord Berwick always gives a man a trial, that he won't kill a man unless something's proved against him. You can't prove anything against me. The Red Wedding was my father's work and Ryman's and Lord Bolton's. Lothar rigged the tents to collapse and put the crossbowmen in the gallery with the musicians. Bastard Walder led the attack on the camps. They're the ones you want, not me. I only drank some wine.
1: You have no witness.' Not for the first time, Merritt is putting his faith in the honor and sense of justice within the Brotherhood, which again is rather rich, and in desperation he rats out the true architects of the Red Wedding. This is surely groundwork for a fray day of reckoning somewhere in the future of the story, but what's really surprising here is Tom's response to the defense that there were no witnesses. At the tail end of the chapter, And with the last breath of A Storm of Swords, George unfurls perhaps the biggest and most unexpected twist in the saga to date when Thomas Evans turns to the hooded woman and cites her as a witness to the Red Wedding.
2: As it happens, you're wrong there.
1: The singer turned to the hooded woman. Milady? Milady? The outlaws parted as she came forward, saying no word. When she lowered her hood, something tightened inside Merritt's chest, and for a moment he could not breathe. No, no, I saw her die. She was dead for a day and a night before they stripped her naked and threw her body in the river. Raymond opened her throat from ear to ear. She was dead. Her cloak and collar hid the gash his brother's blade had made, but her face was even worse than he remembered. The flesh had gone pudding-soft in the water and turned the color of curdled milk. Half her hair was gone, and the rest had turned as white and brittle as a crone's. Beneath her ravaged scalp, her face was shredded skin and black blood where she had raked herself with her nails. But her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him, and they hated
2: And with those words, the penny drops for the first-time reader. The hooded woman is none other than Catelyn Stark. We'll recap how Lady Stark came to be resurrected in a later segment and keep the focus on merit here. Imagine his absolute shock at seeing Catelyn judging him, given he was likely oblivious to the rising trend of resurrections in Westeros portrayed in the books. Given Merritt's backstory with the Kingswood Brotherhood, it must have felt like history repeating itself when Lem threw the rope around his neck, as if his whole life had led to that moment. But he could have never guessed who the person to finally condemn him would be. After the gruesome description of the gashes on her face and her pudding-soft skin, it says her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him and they Hated. When Uncat is asked if she had witnessed Merritt's guilt, unable to speak due to the depth of the cut to her throat that Raymond Frey, Merritt's full-blood younger brother, had inflicted at the Red Wedding, she simply nods. That's all it takes to condemn him.
1: Merritt Frey opened his mouth to plead, but the news choked off his words. His feet left the ground, the rope cutting deep into the soft flesh beneath his chin. Up into the air he jerked, kicking and twisting, up and up and up.
2: The chapter ends on that dark and sinister note, with a reader unsure if they should be cheering or appalled. Merritt is a character who, like Bran and Sansa Stark, once held lofty dreams related to knighthood and valour, dreams which were crushed by the Kingswood Brotherhood years before this new, vengeful incarnation of the BWB finished the job. Merritt's gloomy past pained existence and final protestations that he was only a bit part player in the Robb Stark massacre might elicit some amount of sympathy from some readers, but for others the prospect of a bloody revenge seems exciting. Perhaps George wants us to feel a bit of both. Ultimately, Merritt viewed himself as a victim of misfortune and being in the wrong place at the wrong time, which in most cases seemed like an excuse to ignore his own shortcomings. But as he's hoisted into the air, condemned by a dead woman in the unlikeliest of scenarios, perhaps we could forgive him for feeling down on his luck this time around.
1: And up next, we'll explore the function of epilogues in fiction and what this specific epilogue accomplishes, before going on to segments on the history and thematic significance of the setting of Merritt's chapter, and finally, how the Stoneheart reveal and arc speaks to George's overarching cautionary theme of vengeance. But first, it's time to thank our patrons from the Valyrian steel level. Our thanks to Aerodoe, Aelin, Akiva of House Hunt, Acker from a Shy, Oxheart, Amber the adamant, Anna Hortense of Ashai, Blythe Spirit, Cabot the unfrozen, March of the Mage, David, Dean, Drew, Sir Sorsadelica, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theodin, Jill, Miss Jody, J M, Herbert Westeros the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infandaris the unspeakable terror, Boss. The Sathorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, and Lady Dyerliz of Nocky, the Alpha Patron.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen
2: She don't speak,
1: said the big man in the yellow cloak.
2: You bloody bastards cut her throat too deep for that. But she remembers.
1: He turned to the dead woman and said, What do you say, lady? Was he part of it? Lady Catlin's eyes never left him. She nodded.
2: Epilogues hold a unique place in fiction. Along with prologues, they're a device used by some authors to perform specific functions that the main narrative cannot or should not encompass. In fact, the best prologues and epilogues often function as standalone stories. But while the prologue is usually doing the heavy lifting of setting up a narrative and introducing backstory and world building, Epilogues exist to reveal critical information or provide closure to a narrative thread. In genre fiction, they're frequently used to hint at or directly tee up the next instalment or sequel, sometimes employing a place or voice that is distinctly separate from the main story and often set in the near or even distant future.
1: That said, their usefulness has long been debated by literary authors – Henry James, for instance, complained that they resembled post-narrative award ceremonies with spouses, fortunes, children, and happy ever afters being bestowed upon a novel's characters to avoid including such saccharine notes in the main narrative. To this point, the epilogue is frequently employed in children's fiction as a vehicle to reassure the reader that the kids are all right. That is, that after all the dangers and adventures a youthful protagonist may have faced, they end up safe and happy in the end, a function that is also embraced by many popular novel writers.
2: Their use in genre fiction, though, can have a much darker function. Setting up a sequel, for instance, can involve introducing a new horror element or some kind of crisis or conflict that wasn't explicitly introduced in the main narrative. Perhaps an evil that was thought to be defeated in the story is revealed to be slumbering off page, or perhaps a new character or setting that will appear in a subsequent instalment might be introduced but, to whatever use the epilogue is put, it must remain in sync with the major themes of the story, and above all else, the novel must still function as a complete work without it.
1: The Merit Frey epilogue serves a number of these purposes to A Storm of Swords. Introducing a Frey point of view adds critical backstory to The Red Wedding, arguably the central cataclysm of the novel, and gives insight into new characters without a long-term commitment to a new point of view. It also brings a point of view back to the Brotherhood Without Banners, which had been missing since Arya left them. We are reacquainted with several key members of the group, setting up their A Feast for Crows arcs and possible plotting in The Winds of Winter.
2: Most importantly, the Merit chapter resolves what became of Catelyn Stark. Last seen drifting dead in the green fork, the horror of her murder is still fresh in the reader's mind. The shocking reveal that she lives is the ultimate cliffhanger. The author reveals his background and affinity with horror fiction in this moment, with the descriptions of a ravaged revenant paired with Merit Frey's absolute certainty that she had been dead for a day and a night. We also get to hate the phrase just a little bit more with the descriptions of their treatment of both Robb's and Kat's corpses seen as little more than outright desecration.
1: The introduction of a revived Catelyn Stark raises more questions than it answers, though. Because we're seeing events through Merit's eyes, we aren't informed of the mechanism of her reanimation. Perhaps a very careful reader might note Lord Berwick's absence and wonder about its significance. But for most of us, that explanation is left for another day, part of another cliffhanger in another novel. But this may be the most significant function of the merit chapter, setting up a plotline in the next installment that will be equal parts horror and pathos. And in order to do this effectively, the epilogue, though it stands apart from the main narrative of the novel, has to be adequately set up by the events that precede it.
2: In a sense, while the epilogue should leave readers anticipating what will come next, it must also look backwards at what came before like the jewel-faced Roman god Janus, who in looking both forwards and backwards at the same time, presided over both beginnings and endings and transitions of all types, the Merit chapter encourages the reader to look backwards as well as forwards. In the interim of waiting for the next chapter to this tale, the reader should be able to discern a firm foundation for the twist to enable them to speculate on what will come.
1: And so we're going to take some time now to explore the setup for the Stoneheart reveal. It should be noted that the name Stoneheart, as well as the other monikers apparently given to the Revenant Catelyn Stark, are never mentioned until A Feast for Crows. In the A Storm of Swords epilogue, she is simply called Lady Catelyn, but her reappearance on page was foreshadowed and prefigured in a number of ways as far back as A Game of Thrones.
2: Here there are a few curious lines which hint at the appearance of lady stoneheart while it would be nigh on impossible to guess the stoneheart twist in advance these snippets are designed to stand out on a reread a testament to the depth of george's writing and a reward for those of us who revisit the saga to discover new secrets as we said the fun begins in a game of thrones The concept of resurrecting the dead, which will become highly significant in any plotlines connected to the others, as well as to the BWB arc, is introduced at the end of the A Game of Thrones prologue. As dramatic endings go, Waymar Royce's resurrection stands out as one of the key moments of A Game of Thrones, and yet its significance will not be truly felt for many pages to come. Catelyn Stark's resurrection, then, is not a deus ex machina. By the end of A Storm of Swords, this type of magic has been seen many times, most significantly to the Stoneheart story in the person of Lord Beric Dondarian, the Brotherhood Leader, who was resurrected by the Red Priest Thoros of Myr six times during his epic battles against Gregor Clegane and the Lannisters.
1: Also in A Game of Thrones, as far back as Arya Stark's first chapter and the seventh of the novel, while watching the boys sparring in a training session, she and Jon discuss coats of arms, and Jon suggests she take a Tully Stark sigil. Arya's response, a wolf with a fish in its mouth, that would be silly, might seem like a throwaway line, until we arrive at Arya's wolf dream in A Storm of Swords. While inhabiting her lost direwolf Nymeria by a river, Arya sees a pale body floating downstream. In a heartrending scene, she smells her mother, and then feels compelled to pull the soaked body from the water. It says, "'She shook it to make it move, but there was only death and blood in her mouth. By now she was tiring, and it was all she could do to pull the body back to shore.'" So at that moment, given George's use of symbolism related to house sigils, Arya herself becomes the wolf with a fish in its mouth as she drags her mother's body to dry land.
2: And in the second novel, *A Clash of Kings, we get a similarly curious line that takes on a deeper meaning on a reread. Sent south to Bitterbridge in order to treat with Renly Baratheon, Catelyn Stark does her best to represent her son Rob as a political envoy in extremely difficult circumstances. With her father dying, her husband Ned executed, her son Bran injured, left behind at Winterfell with four-year-old Rickon, Sansa captured by Lannisters, Arya missing and Robert at war, Catelyn's heart is torn in several directions at once. While she continues to show the world a brave face, the reader understands that the level of grief in her heart is becoming unbearable.
1: Within Renly's luxurious pavilion, she stares into the mirror of his bespoke green armour. It says, The steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond. The face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? In this scene, George uses Cat's reflection to convey imagery of a drowning woman in green water, which fits perfectly with her eventual fate when the phrase send her cold body down the green fork. So there we have two excellent examples of George foreshadowing Catlin's death and the subsequent mockery of Tully funeral rites by the relentlessly awful phrase.
2: But there are further instances of foreshadowing which point indirectly or cryptically to the Lady Stoneheart twist. Back in A Game of Thrones, as Cat tries desperately to make her way to her sister Lysa at the Eyrie with Tyrion Lannister as her captive, it says, Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone.
1: And there are also scattered references to Stoneheart's tears. As she descended into madness during the Red Wedding, it says, Ten fierce ravens were raking her face with sharp talons and tearing off strips of flesh, leaving deep furrows that ran red with blood. Of course, there were no actual ravens. George is using figurative language to describe Cat's own fingers scratching her nails down her face in a disturbing display of grief. Sure enough, in the Merit Epilogue, it's confirmed that her face was shredded skin and black blood where she had raked herself with her nails.
2: Catelyn's tears are first related to her death when she arrives in the Vale of Arran and beholds the sight of the waterfall known as Alyssa's tears due to a tragic local legend. Alyssa had witnessed her family murdered, yet never wept in life. And so the waterfall, whose waters never touch the floor, is named for her. Cat thinks she wondered how large a waterfall her own tears would make when she died. And with her and Alyssa's stories bearing significant similarities, we can't imagine the fact that it's Cat who contemplates the
1: legend is a coincidence. And sure enough, Catelyn being so emotionally exhausted that she can't cry is remarked on later in her story – When Rickard Carstark is responsible for murdering the young hostages Willem Lannister and Tyon Frey out of revenge for his fallen sons, Torin and Eddard, who died at Whispering Wood, it says she might have wept, but there were no tears left in her.
2: But perhaps the most obvious hit-you-around-the-head foreshadowing comes from the wandering adherent of the old gods and friend to the BWB, the Ghost of High Heart. The ghost is troubled by prophetic dreams, which are of great interest to the brotherhood, who are desperate to gain any advantage over their foes that they can. She tells them that, I dreamt of a roaring river and a woman that was a fish. Dead she drifted, with red tears on her cheeks, but when her eyes did open, oh, I woke from terror."
1: And so the ghost of High Heart, who had already predicted the red wedding, not only telegraphs Cat in the river, but also conveys the absolute terror the resurrected Lady Stoneheart is ready to inflict upon her enemies. Notice the ghost comments on Stoneheart's terrible eyes, which is later echoed by Merritt when he observes that her eyes were the most terrible thing. Her eyes saw him, and they hated.
2: And circling back to the moment when Aya as Nymeria pulled her mother out of the water, she thinks, rise, rise and eat and run with us. So there's a wealth of hints, prefiguring and playfulness from the author leading up to Catelyn's resurrection. Dreaming inside her direwolf, Aya leaves her mother's body on the shore when she hears men approaching on horseback, men on horses with flapping black and yellow and pink wings and long shiny claws in hand. The waking Aya realizes the meaning of the dream, her mother is dead, but doesn't seem to have recognized the black, yellow, and pink cloaked men as her former companions, Beric, Thoros, and Lem. In A Feast for Crows, we learn from Thoros of Myr's conversation with Brienne that when the Brotherhood leader Beric Dondarrion found the body and Thoros refused to administer the kiss of life, Beric himself did so, passing his life force to Catelyn in order to resurrect her.
1: The Merit Epilogue takes all of those early hints and foreshadowing and delivers a stunning reveal, a cliffhanger that leaves readers gasping at its audacity. A major point-of-view character, a fan favorite, often seen as the mother of the story, who was ripped from the narrative in the largest shock of a book filled with shocking moments, is given back to us in a manner sure to evoke horror. The author revels in this type of reveal, with Catelyn's reappearance surely harking back to Waymar Royce rising in the prologue of A Game of Thrones. But before we discuss Lady Stoneheart's drive to wreak vengeance upon House Frey and the thematic significance of vengeance to A Song of Ice and Fire more broadly, let's discuss some of the other elements of tone and theme revealed or furthered by the A Storm of Swords epilogue. Up next, an examination of the history of Old Stones and what it reveals about the Stoneheart arc. Every great story requires interesting characters, an engrossing plot, evocative prose, an important theme. But epic fantasy also requires a memorable setting, a world both like and unlike our own, with its own rich history and geography and customs, its own beauties and terrors. The best fantasy carries us far from the fields we know to worlds beyond the hill, worlds that, once visited, live on in our imaginations for the rest of our lives. They assume their own reality, these imaginary worlds. Millions of people have never visited Rome or Paris, yet they know the Colosseum and the Eiffel Tower by sight. Rivendell, the Shire, and the Mines of Moria are instantly recognizable in much the same way to countless readers around the world. The history of fantasy is rich with such imagined landscapes. George R.R. Martin
2: In 2018, when he announced his endowment of a scholarship to the Clarion West Writers' Workshop, George R.R. Martin made a potent statement about the role of setting in epic fantasy. A memorable setting, quote, with its own rich history and geography and customs, is the key to the best fantasy has to offer. Creating this setting is part of world building, and in building an immersive world, the author both invites the reader inside and provides a sense of verisimilitude, a feeling that this world, though it could and should differ from our own in many key ways, is as real as our own.
1: And this is something he's done with great success in Westeros and beyond, offering not one but many distinct regions that have their own geography, history, and culture. Most significantly, in A Song of Ice and Fire, these elements are not mere window dressing. The geography and conditions often set the tone or mood of a chapter, while in A Song of Ice and Fire, the past informs the present and the future. George uses world building in a unique way that presses all the elements into dual service. In so doing, he's created a world that's both real and fantastical at the same time, which functions on multiple levels. His constructed world has so many layers that it's possible to dive deep and find through lines that begin far in the past and lead straight into and through the narrative, leading us on to whatever future the author has in store for us.
2: And so a study of the history of a place, in this case Old Stones, might yield up some key details or themes that both support and inform the narrative. Old Stones, perhaps known by a different name in its early days, was the seat of House Mud of the First Men during the days before the Andal invasions. In A Storm of Swords, as the Northern Army travels to the Twins from River Run, they spend a night in its ruins, described thus. They reached old stones after eight more days of steady rain and made their camp upon the hill overlooking the Blue Fork within a ruined stronghold of the ancient River Kings. Its foundations remained amongst the weeds to show where the walls and keeps had stood, but the local small folk had long ago made off with most of the stones to raise their barns and septs and holdfasts. Yet in the centre of what once would have been the castle's yard, a great carved sepulchre still rested, half-hidden in waist-high brown grass amongst a stand of ash.
1: Oldstone sits on a hill not far from where the Blue Fork rises in a tangle of natural springs and rills. The path Rob's army takes to the twins is nearly the reverse of the one they followed in A Game of Thrones cross-country from River Run to the Twins, including traveling through the Whispering Wood. Only now, with all the rivers in flood, there were no bridges across the Blue Fork to accommodate them, and they were forced to pick their way through the marshy area around Hagsmire and Seven Streams. And so they came to Oldstones, its high hill, no doubt, an inviting place to camp amidst the surrounding bogs and wetlands.
2: Catelyn tells Rob what she knows of the history of the place based on her own childhood travels with her father in whose domain the ruins sit. House Mud, she says, ruled the Riverlands for a thousand years before the Andals came. The sepulchre in the castle yard, where Thomas Evans will sit strumming his harp in the Merit chapter, is the final resting place of the IV, king of the rivers and hills, who is known as the Hammer of Justice, and who raised the castle at Oldstones to be the strongest in Westeros. Quite an impressive claim, when other fortifications of the First Men, like Winterfell and Storm's End, must have been its contemporaries.
1: Tristopher is said to have won ninety-nine battles, but lost the hundredth when seven Andal kings united against him. Nor did his family and his castle survive long after his death. Kingdom, castle, and heir were all soon lost. Tristopher's son, Tristopher V, was the last in the line of House Mud. In fact, in story, the end of the line for House Mud could be seen as analogous to the apparent end of the line for House Stark.
2: At least two of Christopher's famous victories are related in the world book. When the Andal king, Roland II of the Vale, came to the Riverlands in search of plunder to fund the great castle he was building in the Mountains of the Moon, Roland suffered not one but two consecutive defeats at the hands of the Hammer of Justice, narrowly escaping the second with his life. But the Andal lord with whom he sought shelter betrayed him and delivered him to King Tristopher in chains. And so the invader was beheaded at Oldstones, and control of the veil passed to his brother.
1: The association of Oldstones and the fourth Tristopher with the concept of justice is one of the through-lines that can be identified in George's world-building around this place. The hammer of justice fought to keep invaders from destroying his home and kingdom, and given the story of the execution of King Roland Aaron by his own hand, we can guess that he adhered to a concept of justice similar to that still held by Northmen like Ned Stark in the present day. Fast forward to A Storm of Swords, and we have the revenant of Lord Stark's widow, murdered at the Red Wedding and reanimated by the kiss of Valor, wreaking her own brand of justice upon two members of the family responsible for her own and her son's deaths at Oldstone's, former seat of the Hammer of Justice.
2: And we have every reason to think Lady Stoneheart continues her quest for vengeance upon House Frey and House Lannister in the vicinity of Old Stones following Merritt's death. In A Feast for Crows, it's noted that after Merritt and Peter's deaths, Stoneheart's band was tracked to Fairmarket to the south and later to Hagsmire to the north. Several months later, Ryman Frey was ambushed and killed 2 leagues south of Fairmarket. Ryman had been at Riverrun when Jamie Lannister arrived and was dismissed while in the company of a woman wearing a very curious crown, a circlet of hammered bronze, graven with runes and rings with small black swords.
1: As we mentioned earlier, The woman names herself Queen of the Whores, and in spite of the fact that when Ryman was dismissed, he was ordered by Jamie to leave the crown behind, the same crown, which of course exactly matches the description of the crown Robb Stark was wearing at the Red Wedding, is later seen in the possession of Lady Stoneheart, not long after she's noted to have traveled to Fairmarket, leading readers to the conclusion that Ryman Frey not only failed to surrender the crown to Jamie... But that the Stoneheart band was responsible for his death as well. There
2: were a number of witnesses to the scene of Ryman's dismissal, but two in particular we should take note of. The first is a singer with a wood harp, none other than Tom 07 Streams of the Brotherhood Without Banners. The second is the self-identified Queen of Whores. After Ryman's death, Walder Rivers tells Jamie. It is almost as if they knew that he would be returning to the Twins and with a small escort. Since we know that Tom remained at River Run, we wonder if the woman could have been the source of the BWB's information.
1: As we noted earlier, Peter Frey was in the company of a camp follower the last time he was seen prior to his execution at Oldstones. Much later, Brienne of Tarth will be captured by the Brotherhood and forced – in order to save her own and her companions' lives, to seek out Jaime Lannister for the band. At Raventree Hall, Jaime had words with a camp follower named Hildy. Later that same evening, Brienne would ride into Pennytree, asking for Jaime, for all the world, as if she knew exactly where he'd be. Lady Stoneheart's quest for vengeance, or justice as she sees it, is unabated and appears to be assisted by many Riverlanders, not the least of whom are women who are or who are posing as sex workers. But we
2: see something else in the behaviour of Lady Stoneheart when we get to witness her interrogating captives in the Merit epilogue and again in Brienne 8, The Feast for Crows. While she is clearly focused primarily on vengeance, as we noted earlier, she and her company very carefully quiz both Merit and Brienne about the whereabouts of Arya Stark. Upon joining the BWB, Lady Stoneheart clearly learned that Arya had been with them, very close to the twins, prior to the Red Wedding. She has obviously retained enough cognition that the search for her daughter takes preeminence over vengeance, at least in certain cases.
1: The fact that she retains this focus on finding her child might also indicate another possible significance to Old Stones as a location in the Stoneheart arc, and this also has its roots in history. Oldstones is best remembered in modern Westeros as the home of the girl called Jenny, for whom Prince Duncan the Small gave up his place in the Targaryen succession. Their love story became the stuff of legend and song, and many speculate that it was a song about Jenny that Rhaegar Targaryen played at the tourney of Harrenhal that made Lyanna Stark cry.
2: In fact, in the merit chapter, Tom O'Sevens is playing Jenny's song as merit enters the ruins of Old Stones. And earlier, when Cat and Rob arrive at Old Stones and meet in the castle yard, Jenny is the first thing that comes to Rob's mind when Cat tells him where they are. There's a song, he remembered, Jenny of Old Stones, with the flowers in her hair. They go on to discuss the history of the place and then Rob's arrangements for his succession. In the belief that his two younger brothers and Arya are dead, and with Sansa married to Tyrion Lannister, he has resolved to name his half-brother, Jon Snow, as his heir.
1: And this is interesting for a number of reasons. First, in light of the association of Oldstones with a succession crisis within House Targaryen. Second, in light of the possible connection of the romance of Prince Duncan and Jenny of Oldstones with Jon's parents. And lastly, there's a thematic resonance with Duncan and Jenny and Rob and Jane Westerling that has yet to become evident while Rob's army is encamped at Oldstones, but which will do so all too soon. In *A Dance with Dragons*, Barristan Selmy thinks the Prince of Dragonflies loved Jenny of Oldstones so much he cast aside a crown, and Westeros paid the bride price in corpses. Substitute Rob for Duncan, Jane for Jenny, and the unnamed Frey Bride for the crown, and you might see the connection.
2: And so to circle back to the succession, in that same chapter, Cap 5 of A Storm of Swords, Rob introduces his will and has it signed by his primary bannerman. Catelyn disagrees, but seems to recognise that Rob is having his own way in the matter – the significance of her returning to Old Stones, the location of that last significant interaction between mother and son prior to arriving at the Twins, to launch her campaign of bloody vengeance cannot then be underestimated. It may very well be that from this place, where her son declared his will regarding his successor, Lady Stoneheart is beginning a journey towards realising his stated desire.
1: In support of that, we have two things mentioned just previously, her repossession of her son's crown from Ryman Frey, and her obvious cognition regarding her daughter's presence in the Riverlands. While revenge is clearly her main focus, we cannot say that she's a mere vengeance zombie when she appears to have a plan for the crown and when she's instructing her followers to gather up as many orphaned children as they can find wandering in the area in the hopes of locating her daughter amongst them. Upon inspection, it becomes obvious Stoneheart has a plan.
2: Now, it's just possible that if she found Arya alive, Stoneheart might take that as an opportunity to prove her son posthumously wrong about his sister's death and reinstate her into the line of succession, crowning her with a brother's crown and naming her Queen in the North. But we think it's equally, if not more possible, she will choose to honour her son's final wishes, and that wheels are placed in motion in the Riverlands in A Feast for Crows to do just that. When her uncle Brynden finally surrenders Riverrun to Jamie Lannister in Feast, with Tom Sevens of the BWB conveniently planted inside the castle, Two members of his garrison, Sir Robin Riger and Sir Desmond Grell, elect to take the Black and are en route to the Wall even as John is assassinated by his own men at the end of A Dance with Dragons. Only the Winds of Winter will tell us if those two had an ulterior motive, as many suspect, in making that trip.
1: In light of the many complex plot lines swirling in the Riverlands in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, the setting of the final chapter of A Storm of Swords seems therefore intentional. Those through lines from history that we mentioned, both the ancient history and more modern events like Duncan and Jenny, Rhaegar and Lyanna, and Robb's Will, seem poised to continue to inform the narrative, justice, succession, and tragedy among them. But we should not forget another aspect of setting that's also present at Old Stone's – mood. We noted earlier that a setting can
2: inform the mood of the narrative. And indeed, when Cat and Rob arrive at Old Stone's in A Storm of Swords, the gloomy mood is matched by the sodden ground and leaden skies. George uses this tool to great effect in Storm to build a sense of dread as Rob's army approaches the twins but when we look at Old Stone specifically, we see that the mood it evokes is not limited to the rainy weather in A Storm of Swords. There's Tristopher, the king who lost his hundredth battle against the Andal invaders, and whose line failed him. The Andal king, Roland Arryn, who was executed at the place. The tragedy of Duncan and Jenny, which had its origins there, the possibility that a melancholy song about that couple figured into the equally tragic story of Rhaegar and Lyanna, and finally, Catelyn's own bittersweet memories of her childhood and the finality of her discussion with Rob about his successor that took place there.
1: The decidedly dark mood the location is imbued with, not to mention all of the historical themes we've noted, combined to make the melancholy place associated with so much grief and sadness in its past the ideal place for the Stoneheart arc to begin. And we expect that it will continue that way as the story progresses in the winds of winter and beyond. Up next, we'll conclude our analysis with a closer look at the theme of vengeance in A Song of Ice and Fire as seen through the lens of Lady Stoneheart.
2: The phrase slashed her throat from ear to ear. When we found her by the river, she was three days dead. Harwin begged me to give her the kiss of life, but it had been too long. I would not do it. So Lord Berwick put his lips to hers instead, and the flame of life passed from him to her. And... She rose. May the Lord of Light protect us. She rose.
1: In our recent episode on Oberyn Martell, we identified a continuum that ranges from justice to revenge that the author explores through a variety of character arcs. Major characters like Ned Stark, Stannis Baratheon, and Daenerys Targaryen search for justice. Sandra Clegane, Obrid Martell, and Arya Stark are all seeking vengeance for a great personal wrong, while a host of minor characters are seen engaged in similar pursuits. But no character embodies the thirst for pure vengeance more than the reanimated Catelyn Stark introduced in the Merit Frey epilogue and christened Lady Stoneheart in A Feast for Crows. There's a
2: certain irony that the instrument of Catelyn's resurrection, the enabler of her consuming quest for vengeance, Lord Beric Dondarrion, the leader of the BWB, was originally sent into the Riverlands and charged with bringing justice to Gregor Clegane by none other than Catelyn's late husband and former Hand of the King, Eddard Stark. Ned's command to Lord Beric and the hundred men who rode with him was simple – I charge you to ride to the Westlands with all haste to cross the Red Fork of the Trident under the king's flag and there bring the king's justice to the false knight, Gregor Clegane, and to all those who shared in his crimes.
1: This was after the incidents at Sherer in Town and the Mummers Ford in the Riverlands when Lord Hoster Tully sent an embassy to King's Landing seeking permission to strike back against Tywin's bannermen. Mark Piper, one of the emissaries, asks if the crown will give them leave to take vengeance, and Ned is very careful to draw a distinction between vengeance and justice. Vengeance? I thought we were speaking of justice. Burning Clegane's fields and slaughtering his people will not restore the king's peace, only your injured pride. He goes on, People of Sherer, I cannot give you back your homes or your crops, nor can I restore your dead to life but perhaps I could give you some small measure of justice in the name of our king, Robert.
2: Less than a year and a half later, the Riverlands is a smouldering ruin from the war that essentially began with Clegane's raids on those three villages. Ned and Cat are both dead, and Beric Dondarrion, Ned's chosen instrument of justice, revived from death six times by Thoros of Mir's red god – has passed his life force into the corpse of Catelyn Stark. Cat, who tried so hard to live by her family's values in life, was driven mad in the moment of her death by the repeated losses she endured during those months. Her husband executed by the Lannisters, her two young sons reportedly dead at the hands of their foster brother Theon Greyjoy, one daughter missing and presumed dead, the other forcibly married into the family who murdered her father. Rob had been Kat's exclusive focus, her last hope, and that was taken from her in an instant at the Red Wedding.
1: Catelyn could have had no doubt that the phrase had executed the massacre – but the words Roose Bolton uttered as he thrust a longsword into her only surviving child's heart also implicated House Lannister, Jamie Lannister specifically, the very man Catelyn had freed and sent to King's Landing to seek the release of her girls. As her mind broke under the strain of grief, it will become clear that two ideas implanted themselves in it and survived her resurrection, a hatred of all phrase and a vendetta against any who could be said to be serving House Lannister.
2: And so Lady Stoneheart, with members of the BWB at her side, embarks on a quest for vengeance couched in the language of justice. The deaths we see in the Merit chapter are framed as executions, with Catelyn giving evidence of the victim's guilt. But as the vendetta escalates, there are signs that justice has become a travesty for the Brotherhood under Lady Stoneheart. Making her way towards the crossroads from the Quiet aisle, Brienne of Tarth witnesses this. Hardly a hundred yards went by without a corpse. They dangled under ash and alder, beech and birch, larch and elm, hoary old willows and stately chestnut trees. Each man wore a noose around his neck, and swung from a length of hempen rope, and each man's mouth was packed with salt." Some wore cloaks of grey or blue or crimson, though rain and sun had faded them so badly that it was hard to tell one colour from another. Others had badges sewn on their breasts. Brienne spied axes, arrows, several salmon, a pine tree, an oak leaf, beetles, bantams, a boar's head, half a dozen tridents. Broken men, she realised, dregs from a dozen armies, the leavings of the lords.'
1: While the grey, blue, and crimson cloaks clearly indicate Freys and Lannisters, Brienne and her companions soon realize that many of these victims are the men responsible for the rape of saltpans. It's made clear from the sigils, with a number of likely northern crests mentioned, that broken men know no allegiance, and it's equally clear that the Stoneheart Band's remit has expanded to meeting out their brand of justice to all comers. At the same time, the salt in the mouths of these victims speaks clearly to the rage and sense of purpose brought to the table by Lady Stoneheart. The salt represents guest right, broken by the phrase at the Red Wedding. As Jane Heddle will tell Brienne in A Feast for Crows, guest right don't mean so much as it used to, not since Milady came back from the wedding. Some of them swinging down by the river figured they was guests too.
2: Based on that statement, it might be construed that the Stoneheart era BWB is purposely luring victims in with the false security of guest right in order to wreak their bloody vengeance. While in some cases there might have been a semblance of a trial as the Brotherhood was known for, one has to wonder what chance any of those hanging corpses Brienne witnesses were given to defend their actions or association with the enemies of Lady Stoneheart. Based on what we see of both Merritt's and Brienne's trials, we have to think very little. Most were probably captured, convicted and executed very quickly, leading to the sense of sham proceedings we clearly get in both the Merit chapter and Brienne's final feast chapter. As Thoros tells Brienne, I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were kingsmen, knights and heroes. But some nights are dark and full of terrors, my lady. War makes monsters of us all.
1: Thoris essentially admits that there is no justice to be had from the Stoneheart Brotherhood. Nothing Brienne says can convince Lady Stoneheart that she, and by extension, Jamie Lannister, had honorable intentions. The terrible imprint of Jaime Lannister's name implying his involvement on the moment of her son's death has forever poisoned whatever is left of Catelyn's mind against him. Brienne bearing his sword and a letter stating that she is about the king's business in the company of Tyrion's former squire and one of Randall Tarly's household knights is all the evidence Stoneheart needs to condemn the woman who once swore herself to her service with these words. I am yours, my lady, your liegeman, or whatever you would have me be. I will shield your back and keep your counsel and give my life for yours if need be. I swear it by the old gods and the new.
2: But the fact is that Brienne's vow to Catelyn, like all feudal contracts, is a two-way street. Catelyn vowed the following in turn. I vow that you shall always have a place by my hearth, and meat and mead at my table, and pledge to ask no service of you that might bring you into dishonour. I swear it by the old gods and the new. But, as we've seen with the ancient tradition of guest rite, societal norms have been abandoned in the face of treachery and the desire for vengeance. A quest for justice will yield nothing when all systems are broken down, but vengeance is there for the taking by anyone with a means to do so. Ignoring Brienne's insistence upon her own and Jamie's honour, as well as the precepts in their vows against dishonour, Lady Stoneheart will demand that Brienne become complicit in her vengeance as the cost of her and her companions' lives.
1: And speaking of vengeance and guest right, we should also address those themes as portrayed in the northern legend of the rat cook in Bran 4 of A Storm of Swords, which comes just a few chapters after the red wedding. Bran is at the nightfort and we first hear about this legend. He recalls the story of the rat cook chopping up the son of an Andal king and serving him to his father in a pie, an old man telling him about the punishment the cook received. It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, nor for serving the Andal king his son in a pie. A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive.
2: And so, while we're never told explicitly what the crime of the Andal king was, it is made clear that vengeance is an acceptable concept in northern culture, and in fact, Perhaps more broadly in Westeros as well, for when Merritt Frey tries to defend himself and his family, he claims Stark shamed us. The whole realm was laughing. We had to cleanse the stain on our honor. It was vengeance. We had a right to vengeance.
1: It was war. A man has a right to vengeance. But in the North especially, slaying guests beneath your roof remains an unforgivable crime, according to Old Nan. For that crime, the rat cook was punished. It says Afterward, the gods transformed the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only eat his own young.
2: In A Dance with Dragons, Wyman Mandalay enacts a vignette of vengeance at Winterfell. Three freys had been sent to visit him at White Harbor to ensure his allegiance to the new Lord of the North, Roose Bolton. Being all too familiar with northern legend, in spite of following the faith of the Seven, Lord Wyman was careful to make guest gifts to the Three as they left his hall, signifying the end of the guest-host relationship. When the phrase, Rhaegar, Simon and Jared, fail to arrive at Barrowton, suspicion falls upon their late host, who denies all knowledge of their movements following their departure. But Wyman then presents... Three Great Wedding Pies at Ramsay Snow's Marriage Feast at Winterfell, described thus. As wide across as wagon wheels, their flaky crusts stuffed to bursting with carrots, onions, turnips, parsnips, mushrooms, and chunks of seasoned pork swimming in a savoury brown gravy.
1: As recipes go, this is remarkably similar to what Brand described in A Storm of Swords, the rat cook had cooked the son of the Andal king in a big pie with onions, carrots, mushrooms, lots of pepper and salt, a rasher of bacon, and a dark red Dornish wine. As is the reception to the pies, the rat cook, quote, served him to his father who praised the taste and had a second slice, while at Winterfell it says, Wyman Manderley himself served, presenting the first steaming portions to Roos Bolton and his fat Frey wife, the next to Sir Hostein and Sir Aenys, the sons of Walder Frey. The best pie you have ever tasted, my lords, the fat lord declared. Wash it down with arbor gold and savor every bite. I know I shall.
2: And so fans have determined that Wyman Mandalay is reenacting the final chapter of the legend, with Frey standing in for the Rat Cook who violated the sacred principle of guest right and was condemned to eat his own young as punishment. The comparison becomes even more on the nose if we consider that one of the missing Freys, Rhaegar, is the son of Aenys Frey, who is in attendance at the wedding. The fact that Merit Frey echoes one of the lines of Old Nan's story, a man has a right to vengeance, leads us to wonder about the second part of that statement. But he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive. And what further punishment the gods might have in store for House Frey?
1: And wonder we must, because while Wyman Manderley's pies are certainly deeply satisfying to characters and readers alike who desire vengeance for the crimes of House Frey, the main perpetrators of the Red Wedding, as outlined by Merrit Frey himself, are still at large. Lord Walder, his son Lame Lothar, his bastard son Walder Rivers, and Roose Bolton. Only Ryman Frey is dead by the end of A Dance with Dragons, killed by the Stoneheart gang near Fairmarket not long after he was implicated by his brother Merit, and so we can expect a concerted effort to punish the other wrongdoers in The Winds of Winter.
2: In A Game of Thrones, when Catelyn is bargaining with Walder to use the crossing, it says... Catelyn would gladly have spitted the querulous old man and roasted him over a fire but she had only till evenfall to open the bridge we've said elsewhere that we wonder if this line could be foreshadowing the notion of stoneheart roasting phrase is an interesting one especially in the context of the rat cook story as we've been discussing if there's a red wedding 2.0 as many in the fandom believe could this be the climax Lord Walder, roasted and served up to his family like Rhaegar, Simon and Jared in the Pies at Winterfell, would continue the parallels with the Ratcook. No doubt, even the most bloodthirsty reader would recoil in horror if that ever came to pass.
1: However it happens, as this quest for vengeance goes on, readers will come to see the truth of what it means to be motivated by vengeance – Vengeance is poisonous and infectious, and it can take over a person and become their raison d'etre and their character goal. This is what's happened with Stoneheart. While we noted that the Brotherhood Without Banners are looking for Arya and so do have other objectives aside from vengeance, it's clear that Stoneheart is going to kill Freys and Lannisters, including anyone she perceives to be associated with them, indiscriminately.
2: As for what the author has to say about vengeance, many A Song of Ice and Fire characters present as cautionary tales. Vengeance consumes, it is toxic and is so far removed from any true concept of justice that it becomes lethal to everyone in its path. Remember Ned saying that burning Clagain's fields and slaughtering his people will not restore the king's peace, only your injured pride. There's an old saying that pride goeth before the fall, and yet another that says if you embark on a journey of vengeance, you should dig two graves, one for your target and one for yourself. And with characters like Sandor Clegane digging graves on the Quiet Isle and Lady Stoneheart revived from a figurative grave, the author seems to be inserting his own commentary on the matter. By turning Catelyn Stark into Lady Stoneheart, George shows us that revenge can poison anyone. When you indulge in that impulse and take it too far, you end by giving up part of your soul. George tempts us to root for vengeance, but in the end we'll see how dark, grim and lonely that road can be.
1: The Merit Frey epilogue may stand as one of the most dramatic cliffhangers in the series to date readers waited until near the end of the next installment, with little more than cryptic hints and offhand mentions about the woman riding with the Brotherhood, to finally learn how Catelyn Stark was revived and see firsthand what had truly become of her. And when we gain this knowledge, it's delivered with a caveat of sorts. Thoros refused to be a part of it, judging Catelyn had been dead for too long. And when Thoros tells Brienne that the fiery kiss was administered by Beric himself, the reader should recall Beric's words to Thoros at high heart. Fire consumes. It consumes. And when it is done, there is nothing left. Nothing.
2: While this knowledge is withheld from the reader in A Storm of Swords, the chapter does provide us with a roadmap of where Stoneheart's attentions will be focused. We know about her side quest to find information about her daughter, but more importantly, we get a list worthy of Aya's own list of names for her vengeance to focus upon. Walder Frey, Ryman Frey, Roos Bolton, Lame Lothar and Bastard Walder. Add Jamie Lannister, the name uttered by Roose Bolton as he murdered Rob, to the list, and it's easy to envisage the mother reciting names to herself, even as her daughter does.
1: Indeed, by the end of A Dance with Dragons, Ryman Frey is dead. Brienne of Tarth has apparently been coerced into bringing Jamie Lannister to the Brotherhood, and Thomas Evans has been planted at Riverrun, where a number of Lannisters and Freys now reside, in particular, Walder Rivers, one of the chief architects of the Red Wedding. In addition, there is a mysterious character at Winterfell called the Hooded Man by readers, who may have been sent by Stoneheart to investigate the story that Arya Stark has been married to Ramsay Snow, and perhaps also to enact vengeance against Roose Bolton. That leaves Lord Walder and his son Lame Lothar, currently at the Twins' Fans have identified a number of mechanisms by which the Stoneheart gang might gain access to those two, whether at the twins itself or at a Red Wedding 2.0 to be held at Riverrun. However these things happen, expect Lady Stoneheart's vengeance to deliver a visceral impact that leaves readers wondering where the limits of vengeance should be, if there is any justice to be had in it, and what its impact is on individuals and society at large.
2: These are big conversations the author wants us to have and they encompass a theme that is prevalent across the entire series. Merit Epilogue Chapter is arguably the tipping point where the steep downward slide of social mores is revealed. And perhaps the biggest takeaway from this chapter is the queasy expectation that there is much more to come, along with a creeping doubt that the reader must feel about whether Catlin's resurrection and subsequent quest to exterminate Freys are really things we should be cheering for.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this exploration of the Merit Frey epilogue. We'll be back soon with a new regular episode, but now, as always, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for including epilogues in A Song of Ice and Fire. And thanks to Kevin MacLeod and Kai Engle for allowing us to use their music in our production. Thanks as well to Lauren, aka Shakes of Thrones, for the instrumental of Jenny's song we used and as usual, we'll end today with thanks for our patrons from the Castlesteel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Sincere thanks to AJ, Egg on the Sixth, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Oakenfist, Arshia, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, maddie and jessica sir clint the Andal, sir duncan cole convenience or death sir archibald cadogan dimitri b dennis esme liz emily of the eerie ezra felix sir gladworth greg history of westeros archmaester kobe of the higher mysteries brendan beefish goldie juke jim McGeon, winter's king john aris rider of the ice dragon sonarion the white storm julie beth of tarth judson archmaester june healer of the lesser poxes Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, armed with the Valyrian sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of What, Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lemmy B, Luke, Monero Geek TV, Maria Margarita, and our cohort of Mats: Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L. And thanks also to Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Nimble Dick Wanirek. Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B., Paul H., Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sir Daniel, the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift, the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Gray, Sherry, Cern, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there, or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now.